Flight attendants, please prepare for takeoff. Stolen by Ehlers to Wheeler, back to Ehlers, scores! Kyle Connor has the Midas touch right now! Here's Patrick Laney. What a shot, wow. Exactly, shoot, score! Oh, what a slick move by Mark Sipley! Ground Control, the official podcast of the Winnipeg Jets, hosted by Jets TV. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ground Control, the official podcast of the Winnipeg Jets. I am your, in air quotes, new host, Tyler Esquivel, joined by Mitchell Clinton of Jets TV, Jamie Thomas of 680 CJOB, along with Paul Edmonds, also of 680 CJOB. And you're probably wondering, what is going on? Where is Jamie? Why is he not talking? Well, uh, had a bit of a, a change here at uh, Jets TV and the Winnipeg Jets uh, announcing last week the the new radio partner with the Winnipeg Jets 680 CJOB. Uh, Paul Edmonds shifting into his normal seat as play-by-play announcer for the team, along with Jamie Thomas uh, being named color commentary. So, gentlemen, first and foremost, congratulations on the new gig. Well, thanks a lot, Tyler. I'm really excited. I mean, this is a role that I've had in the same capacity for the last six-plus seasons, so... It's great that I get to continue that and kind of roll along, something I've always wanted to do growing up in Winnipeg. I wanted to be the voice of the Winnipeg Jets on radio and been able to fulfill that for the last six seasons, and now I'll be able to continue that. So it's quite exciting, and it's also very exciting to be back on a station that I had my foundation on, got my start on many years ago in the late 80s, and then also to be a part of a full-time sort of component of the Winnipeg Jets and True North Sports and Entertainment is uh, exciting as well. Excellent. Well, we're happy to continue having you here with us and uh, expanding your role on Jets TV. Uh, I know uh, we enjoyed having you in the past, so look forward to seeing you more in the future for sure. Yeah, I felt like I was underutilized uh, before, but now I'll be <laughs> not anymore, buddy. Yeah, not anymore. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and you're not getting awesome. paid extra too. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> glad to do it. It'll be a lot of fun. Perfect. And uh, Jamie, for yourself, obviously getting the color commentary job—that's that's big news for you, I guess. Just how excited are you to get back in the booth? Uh, it's been a while since I've been in the booth, uh, Tyler, early two thousands, I was color analyst for the Lethbridge hurricanes, the Western hockey league did that for a few seasons. And now I get to come back and do it again. So, uh, uh echoing Paul's comments, very excited about it. Uh, looking forward to whatever this season turns out to be. Uh, I'm glad we have hockey and I'm glad uh, to be beside a guy that has a lot of passion calling jets games. And, uh, we'll hopefully echo the, and have those same amount of energy that Paul is well known for, uh, during the broadcast. You know, not to age you, Jamie, but I do have yeah. a question. Are any of those Lethbridge Hurricanes that you <laughs> called back in the day, are they playing in the NHL still, or do any of them still play hockey? I'm just trying to think. I, I remember Jarrett Stoll, who starred for the uh, Kootenai Ice during the times and won a Memorial Cup, uh, played for the Los Angeles King. He's retired and now in the broadcast side of things, so a long way of answering no. <laughs> I, I can't think of one guy that's still playing in the National Hockey League when I covered the sport, so... That's awesome. Excellent. Well, happy to have you both aboard. And obviously going forward, uh, there'll be a solid mix of 680 CJOB content mixed in with Jets TV and vice versa. So looking forward to uh, starting this great partnership with you guys. 
shifting into uh, you know the meat and potatoes of this. Obviously, we have some news to talk about here on Ground Control, and I'll start with you, Mitchell. Uh, the schedule release on Wednesday afternoon. What are your takeaways from it? Obviously, starting against Calgary, uh, Toronto, and Ottawa are the two teams the Jets will face ten times this season. Some interesting notes there too. Obviously, you don't play Toronto in February, and then Ottawa, you don't play them in March. So there are gaps even when you do play those teams a lot. Yeah. And I mean, for me, a lot of it was uh, the first thing that came to my mind was, you know, the old uh, take me out to the ball game uh, feel that this one really has. I mean, there's so many situations throughout the year, whether it's, you know, January, February, for sure, March, April, where you're seeing the Jets play some back to backs uh, against a lot of these teams. And they even got uh, three games in a row against Toronto uh, in March and three against Calgary uh, also in March. So, you're going to see some rivalries build up. And, and you mentioned that they play uh, Toronto as one of the teams that they play 10 times. They really, they see Toronto once in January. They don't see him in February. And then all of a sudden you got nine matchups against the Toronto Maple Leafs over the course of March and April. So we talk about rivalries being built up. That's going to be crazy. And I think we talked last week or the week before on the podcast uh, about the games between Toronto and Winnipeg and how they, seemingly just are an absolute roller coaster of emotions every single time. So those two months are going to be wild. And then the other thing that, that really jumped out to me was just the fact that, I mean, you look at the last seven games of February, four of those are on the road for the jets, or at least they will be the road team. And then you go to March and you got 12 of 16 on the road there as well. March traditionally has kind of been a road heavy month for the jets over the course of their time in the national hockey league. But you look at that stretch 16 of 23 on the road over the course of six weeks, that's going to be a, a period in time on the schedule. That's going to be a, a bit of a challenge, I think for the jets, but could also be a time when, you know, you really come together as a group and uh, surge forward and really do yourself some favors in the standings. So those are probably the the two aspects of it that jumped out other than the fact that all you're looking at is Canadian teams, which is going to take a little bit to get used to. And the one word that we probably won't hear a lot this year is, are you ready for this big divisional tilt? Because they're all big divisional tilts this year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, Paul, just a thought from you on the fact that this is the all Canadian division and, and Mitch alluded to it being like a baseball schedule. You were a guy that called Winnipeg goal eyes games for a long time. Do you see how this is similar and, and, and in what ways could that sort of breed those rivalries? Well, I think for sure, one of the things I think you're going to see is probably every team's best on every given night. And the reason for that is just less travel, less flitting around, less back-to-backs in terms of back-to-backs in two different cities. So as Mitchell mentioned, I think there's three occasions on the schedule where there's three game series in a row, two of those are against Toronto and one against Calgary. So when you get into that situation where you're playing the same team three times, there's no travel. So you're ready to go. Your pre-planning gets a lot easier. That rivalry builds up over the course of 60 minutes, 80 minutes, 120 minutes, right? So you're going to see a lot of the Canadian teams. We're going to get almost maybe sick of the Canadian sort of agenda this year that is the National Hockey League to start. Because as mentioned, it's nine and 10 teams or nine and 10 times that you're seeing these teams. Not to mention the fact that if you are fortunate enough to kind of navigate through all of this, that you're going to be playing one of those Canadian teams twice, perhaps, to get out of your own division in the postseason. So just when you think that you're going to get out of the 56-game regular season and move on to something else, no, you're going to have 
not one, but possibly two playoff series against a Canadian opponent as well. I think it's going to be great. I think it's going to be unique. And we're also going to see how this is going to unfold and maybe something in the future that maybe renders this to be somewhat uh, advantageous going forward in the way they schedule the games, whether it's in Canada or the United States. The interesting part for me, though, is to start, you've got Calgary. And of course, we remember how that rivalry started or got enhanced, I guess, with Jets 2.0 from the standpoint that the Jets played the Calgary Flames in the first round of the playoffs, or at least the qualifying round this past summer. And of course, we know the heated rivalry that existed from that injury with Mark Shifley. You're going to see the Calgary Flames five of the first 14 games on the schedule. So you want to talk about making an impact or an impactful sort of return to the ice and building those rivalries within your Canadian brethren. You're going to see that between the Winnipeg Jets and the Calgary Flames right out of the gate. Yeah, definitely excited to see how that goes. And, and obviously a lot of change between those two clubs as well. Obviously Derek Forbort joining the Winnipeg Jets, but Calgary added uh, Jacob Markstrom between the pipes. You have Chris Tanev. So lots of changes, but definitely the, the rivalry still will be there and it'll be see an interest. It'll be interesting to see how it unfolds. Jamie, speaking of how things are going to unfold, obviously things in 2020 have, have taught us that it, it's fluid and, and things can change on, on a dime. The NHL announced their COVID-19 protocols as it relates to operating in your home building, practice facilities, and on the road too. What were some of the, the takeaways that you had from reading those documents? Well, I, I think if there's any concern about the teams traveling across the country, I don't think there should be that many considering the players and teams themselves literally have just airport hotel rank on their schedule. Like they are, the teams are eating within the hotels when they're on the road. They're not going around in the cities that they're in. So that kind of stands out. Not going to be a whole lot of fun for uh, guys on the road, especially for the Jets in March where they're on the road for a significant amount of time. This is business and business only and for safety reasons. So that part kind of stands out for if there's any concern in that aspect. And the other part, I was kind of wondering if someone tests positive, how does that work? Um, so the initial positive, the player gets isolated, they begin contact tracing, and then the confirmatory tests on the same sample, then they take another test 24 hours later, then they take a third test 24 hours later. That After that third test, if they're confirmed negative, that's when they exit isolation, they resume training. And it's my understanding, it's a, at least seven days away from the team after that first initial positive. So that's, uh, that is a thing that kind of stands out to me. And it looks pretty cut and dry in a lot of places, not a lot of gray areas. Um, it's the world we live in, but I think the NHL and the NHLPA has done a wonderful job of making sure the players and everyone around them are safe as we head into this season, whenever it is they start. I'm really curious to see how this all evolves as the world continues to progress towards vaccinations and, and other therapies. Mitch, how do you, how do you see this changing if at all well i mean that's tough to say right because you know it depends on numbers of vaccines available it depends you know obviously there's you look at the province of manitoba for example uh you know there's certainly different demographics or different areas that that manitoba health is trying to target first in order to get people on the front lines vaccinated so that's obviously something that's crucial but as more and more uh, kind of comes out, like I remember uh, today, like as we record this about an hour ago, it was announced that Manitoba hopes to be able to vaccinate 10, about 10,000 people a week starting in January, which is a, a fantastic thing to hear. You hope that everything kind of continues to go seamlessly in that regard. 
And then as the season goes on, maybe things do change a little bit. And I'm sure that's, those are conversations that'll continue to be ongoing uh, throughout because as much as, you know, you can have a plan in place and we've seen this in a number of sports, you can have a plan in place, but then things change and you want to be able to adjust to that, whether that's, you know, like your, your pipe dream of, of fans in the building or whatever it may be, or adjusting maybe what uh, the road looks like as more and more people are vaccinated in both countries. It's hard. It's so hard to tell just because of how quickly things have changed, but you know, it's overall for the national hockey league, for all the sports leagues, just for people and society in general, the more vaccinations that continue to get safely administered is only better for everybody in the course of this pandemic. So, I mean, it's something that I don't think I've Googled the word vaccine so much in my entire (laughs) life as I have over the last few months. And it's been interesting to kind of see it evolve. And a lot of the research that has gone into it, you just continue to hope that things progress safely in that regard. And then maybe, you know, you get back to some of the things that we uh, used to enjoy prior to the pandemic. Well, speaking of things we enjoy, no matter pandemic or not, uh, the World Junior Hockey Championship going on over in Edmonton right now. Uh, Jamie, I'll let you introduce our next guest. Uh, He's somebody that uh, had a chance to suit up for Team Canada in the World Juniors. Yeah, and arguably one of the greatest teams in World Junior history, the 1995 team in uh, Red Deer. Uh, Of course, I posed the question to him, which team was better, the 2005 team, uh, which played in North Dakota or the 1995 team. And of course, uh, keep in mind, Jeff O'Neill started in the National Hockey League at the same time as Paul Maurice became a head coach for the first time with the Hartford Whalers. So I brought up that uh, with him as well. And then he played on a line with Ryan Smith and Darcy Tucker, and they were on the fourth line. So Jeff has a very funny uh, kind of story about being told that he's going to be a fourth line and how he really thought about it as compared to what he told the coaching staff. So here's Jeff O'Neill. Hi, this is Neil Pionk, and you're listening to Ground Control, the official podcast of the Winnipeg Jets. Uh, this is the last thing I thought I was going to talk to you about, but um, you've, you've brought another cat into the house. So how does, <laughs> how does that change your life, Jeff? Uh, it's changed it quite dramatically. My wife, it was supposed to be an unbelievable Christmas present, and she kind of sniffed around that it was happening. So I went and had, I couldn't go pick up the cat. It was in Montreal. So to eliminate the surprise, I couldn't get it myself. So a friend of mine got the cat and it's kind of been a bit, I didn't really do research, typical me moment where it's like cats don't want another cat in the house. So now I'm spending a week before the world juniors, not prepping for the tournament. I'm trying to get the cats used to each other. You know, you know what? I'm going to save this video for my wife because she wants to add another fur ball to the house as well. We have one cat as it is. And uh, so thank you. Now you've uh, solved the argument for me. Yeah. already. Just keep it at one, buddy. Just keep it at one. <laughs> okay. The World Juniors is coming up. It's an interesting one to say the least within the bubble. Um, what do you think of not so much the pressure these kids are facing, but the interesting fact that A, there's no fans and B, they're inside a bubble with COVID-19 raging around on the outside? Yeah, it's going to be, I mean, just like the NHL playoffs, I'm sure if you told the guys you're going to play for the Stanley Cup with no fans in the building, Mm -hmm. they would be like, man, that's going to be awfully different. But as soon as it kind of got going and they got used to it, it just seemed like regular hockey, the same intensity. So these guys, I think they have a full understanding that's going to be the only kind of hockey ticket going and the magnitude of it, and they're playing for the, the World Juniors, and you can see how excited the kids from Canada were being named to the team. So 
I'm sure as soon as the tournament starts and it's going to be a little different looking up in the stands and seeing tarp instead of fans, but being in Canada, it's going to be a special time and I'm sure the intensity will ramp up pretty quickly. The format has changed the world juniors, Jeff, from when you played Um, back then it was just a round Robin and then there was no playoffs whatsoever, which made it for pretty intense tournaments. Now you've got the quarterfinals, so on and so forth. What format do you like better? I like the, the quarterfinals and, and, and kind of the, the elimination type thing. It was a different format for me when I played in Red Deer with the, uh, it was just a round robin and you got to win as many games. We won the tournament. We got an extra day to celebrate, which was pretty fun. Uh, but I really like the idea of having the, uh, the teams have a playoff and, and finish the tournament like that. Do you like being an analyst for this tournament, having played in it? Yeah, I just, I mean, I guess that's why I am an analyst. I understand mm-hmm. what goes into it and the nerves that are involved with it and uh, the selection process and being a quality player, probably the best player on my junior team. And I had to go and be a fourth line center on the world junior team with Darcy Tucker and Ryan Smith. So I know what that adjustment feels like. And I also know that um, you can't go there with the idea of, oh, okay, there's Kirby Doc and there's other guys that played last year and they're going to carry the load. I can just sit on my rear end and be a passenger for this event mm-hmm. and all the big guns will, you know, take care of business. You got to kind of get ready for that Akil Thomas moment last year where he was the guy that mm-hmm. won the world juniors for Canada. And he wasn't one of the primary players on the team. The guy was carrying the load offensively. So everybody's got to kind of prepare for that. Whatever your role is, you got to be able to contribute and be ready to go. And it's not always easy because you're not used to being in that role when you're sitting on the bench, the whole game, sometimes you're not quite ready for that. Uh, how did the three of you, and I'm talking about Tucker and Smith and yourself, adjust to that role of not playing as many minutes? I mean, that's that's got to be a, a not so much a bitter pill to swallow, but it's got to be an adjustment. Oh, of course. I think the ultimate goal is the gold medal. And Don Hay, who Darcy was familiar with because that was his junior coach, he kind of prepped right. us for that. And when we made the team, he called us in and we all thought we were getting cut. And he said to us, are you prepared to take a lesser role? and just be a role player on this team. And it was, I think I kind of lied and said, yeah, I'll do whatever it takes, but (laughs) I don't think anybody wants to be a fourth line role player, but you have to kind of, you have to kind of fib a little bit and and say, you'll accept it, which we all did. And we all knew the deal. There was guys that were coming back from the NHL, the lockout was going on. So um, we were happy with it and we were contributors and we did our job when we were asked to, and we won the gold medal. A lot of argument, but which team was the best world junior team ever? You know, you have the Sidney Crosby, Patrice Bergeron, uh, Dion Phaneuf team in 2005. Would you put your team up against that team anytime? I think that 2005 team was really good. I think any team with Eric Lindros on it in junior had to have been pretty good too. That guy was such a, it's just any team with Eric Lindros as a junior on it has to be considered one of the best. So uh, I don't, I always kid around with guys. I was kidding with Anthony Stewart the other day about whose mm-hmm. team is better, but uh, that 2005 team is pretty tough to compete against, but I think our team was pretty good and it's a, quite an accomplishment for us. I know we had the opportunity to get, get together last year in Vancouver um, and, and just kind of was two years ago in Vancouver and kind of go over good times. So we were one of the best. I'm not going to say we're the best because 2005 was so good. Yeah. how fast has time gone by Jeff like when you get together with guys like that again is it do you sit back and look at each other and go oh where where did it all go yeah I mean (laughs) just to even think we're coming up on 30 years that's pretty scary 
it's not like a couple of years ago anymore. It's not like, remember 10 years ago and now it's 15. It's like, no, it was 30 years ago back in yeah. Red Deer. So it's kind of when you kind of, you're looking at guys and we've got kids and everyone's got gray hair and we're not just guys that were in the NHL saying, remember the juniors, it was a long time ago. But I think that not everybody goes on and has the, the, the NHL careers of a Jonathan Taze where they win three Stanley cups. I know for myself, Darcy Tucker, Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if Smitty won a Stanley Cup. I don't think he did. But that was our last championship. That was our only experience of winning something pretty serious and significant. So I think we all cherish the memory. Um, you have a tie-in with the head coach of the Winnipeg Jets, and that, that is Paul Maurice. And you got Paul Maurice in his first coaching gig uh, yeah. to go for, for Paul Holmgren and all those years ago. What was he like when he took over? He was certainly very young. Uh, looking back at the photos, he was changing when I was in uh, Raleigh and the last time he was, I saw a photo of him, the team photo, I'm like, holy cow, yeah. that time has changed. But uh, what do you remember when he took over as head coach in, in, in Hartford? Well, I remember he was pretty damn young. My roommate in Hartford was Brad McCrimmon, and he was 35 <laughs> years old at that time, and Paul was 28. So um, I think everybody in the organization expected that transition. I don't know if they expected it seven games into the season like it happened when, when Homer was let go. Um, but that was the path that Jimmy Rutherford was going to take. And um, he was been coaching for a long time. And I think he's grown and developed into a great coach in the NHL. And we kind of had a past in junior where he coached against me. We coached, uh, we were together in a CHL all-star game, but um you know, I had to kind of live and learn with his mistakes. And I think I probably grew on Paul's nerves as the years went on because he was basically my coach throughout my career. I ultimately went to Toronto and who followed me there was Paul Maurice, my second year in Toronto. So uh, I think we've both seen the good and bad of each other as him as a coach and me as a player. But uh, at the end of the day, I think we can sit down now and talk about old times and, and respect, you know, each other for what we did in the past. And, He's still cooking as a great coach in the NHL now, and I can see some of the adjustments he made. And uh, when you've been around as long as he has, like he's basically seen everything and he knows how to react to different situations. Unfortunately, I probably contributed to a lot of the negative situations that he's seen. So he's pretty much seen it all. Uh, How tough is it to have a coach so young in the National Hockey League? And I'm not trying to knock Paul at all, but it, it is a tough adjustment at that age, I imagine. I was too busy navigating my own self as a rookie in right. the NHL. I did not care about him, what he was doing. I had to look after myself. I was right. like, you want to be a coach in the NHL at 28? Good luck, because I got to worry about myself. Um, right. But I think the the older players, they all respected him, and it was a difficult situation coming in. I don't think we're a very good team in Hartford. And I think the second year in the league, he kind of – I think he coached the uh, – or it might've been the first year he was a coach in an all-star game. So we had some success, but ultimately we never made the playoffs. So I think all he had to start with was the player's success and, and, and kind of helping him and working with him. And um, he probably met with them all and just said, I need your kind of acceptance here. And uh, I think it was great. I think the days of having the, the kind of the old curmudgeon coaches, you know, by the wayside, obviously there's a bunch of guys with experience in the league, but, at the end of the day, he, he was a bright hockey mind, and he still is. How much has coaching changed, like, honestly, Jeff, in your mind, from when you played and when you were young compared to guys coming in the league now? I think, Jamie, the main philosophy in coaching can never change because ultimately the desired goal is to get the best out of your players. I think what's changed the most is the players. 
-hmm. when I was playing hockey, you never said to the coach, why are we doing this drill? What is the point of this drill? And I think of players now, and I give them credit, they ask a lot of questions and they want a lot of information where it was kind of robotic when I was playing in the NHL. It was like, do this. This is the drill. Uh, We're going to be better from it and do it properly. And there was never really the questions. It was never, what's with this drill? Why are we doing this drill? Uh, Can you show me the iPad on the bench? I want to see my shift. I want to see my back check. I want to see my power play. That information never really wasn't that available. I had some times in Toronto where Rick Lee would say, you know, the penalty kill for the other teams in the video room, if you want to go watch it, if you don't, then we'll see what happens. So it's just changed that much where it's a lot of information and you got to be able to give that information to the kids because that's what they need to succeed. So that's a lot where it's changed from when I played. What about as an analyst now, Jeff, there is so much information out there. There's analytics now and, and so on and so forth. What do you, what have you changed about as your time as an analyst with all the information that's coming your way now? I don't really deal Jamie. Like it doesn't take yeah. me a whole lot to figure out um, the better team whether it be, um, you know, the Tampa Bay Lightning or the Boston Bruins, they have the puck a lot during the game. They're better players. They're a better team. So if you want to call that analytics, I don't know. I don't do analytics. Not that I'm against it. I think it can be helpful for some situations, but I'm just not familiar with it. And it's not my way of going about being an analyst. My job is to tell the viewers that are watching the game what I think is happening and kind of mm-hmm. explain it. And the best advice I got was probably from my dad. He said, you know, there's guys that are just kind of sitting on the couch, having a beer, watching the game. You got to explain to them what's going on. There's not, it's not brain surgery. It's just, you played mm-hmm. in the NHL for a long time. You understand what goes on in these plays and how they break down. And that's how you explain it. So I don't try to anybody that knows me at work or anything I do. I don't kind of get too complicated. I just like to break it down in a simple format and explain it that way. How much fun are you guys having right now on the, on the, on the daily show? Like, did you ever think in a million years after you retired, you would have so much fun on a radio show? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't think I would be in the media when I retired. I'll tell you that I was, I can remember sitting back on the bus with Ronnie Francis after a game and we were having a cold beer on the road and I looked at him and we were both kind of down in the dumps. It was after a bad loss and, Ronnie said, you think you'll ever like go into the media when you're done? And I'm like, no way, man. Those guys are <laughs> no way. I'm doing, there's no way I'm joining the likes of James Duffy and Bob McKenzie. And I said, you'll probably get into coaching or management or something. He's like, no way. I'm not putting up with that nonsense. When I'm done, I'm done. I'm like, me too, man. Let's go golfing when I'm retired. <laughs> and sure enough, he's now the general manager. He's been yeah. the general manager of two teams. And I've been in the media since, you know, for seven or eight years now. So. It's amazing how things happen, but at the end of the day, um, I think hockey people, they, they explore different options and some have success in, in, in different walks of life. But I think if you can ever get a chance to stay involved in the game and the thing I like about my angle of the game is I don't have the pressure of dealing with the players having success for me to, for my own livelihood, my success is just based upon what I do and, I don't have to worry about keeping 23 guys in line and going out and playing good hockey for me to be in a good spot. Uh, I work with great people and they're kind of, you know, they're my success train and I just kind of roll with that. I don't have to worry so much about performance and wins and losses and goals for and against, which I'm glad because I didn't, I don't want to deal with that stress. The stress of playing is so great that I, you know, I did it Mm -hmm. for 12 years and now I just have to, 
kind of have fun and do my job and I, I keep trucking that way. Um, what was the question you hated the most after a loss? <laughs> I just, I didn't like it when it was more evident in Toronto, but mm -hmm. it was when somebody made a really stupid play and the mm -hmm. question was, what did you see there? And you just feel like <laughs> saying, you saw it too. So what are you asking me? Like, I don't understand. I understand the, the people. I understand now that you're in the, I'm in the media side of it. You got to get the story for mm -hmm. whatever sports center or late sports center. But it's like, what did you see there? You know, I screwed up and you know, I made a pivotal mistake. So just do whatever you're going to do with it. There's no sense of really asking me, what did I see there? Because whatever yeah. I was supposed to see, I didn't do anyway. And I made a horrific mistake. So don't ask stupid questions. That's the one thing. <laughs> I think there's a bunch of people that, you know, you got to be prepared and have kind of, it kind of bugs me. I don't, I'm not the best question asker. I got to yeah. do it for my job, but you got to have sensible questions ready. And I think that's the one thing that kind of gets me. It's like, you're going to sit that long and wait for your question. You have a dumb question. I think that's a little bit silly. Uh, Roger Millions, a coworker of mine when I was at uh, Sportsnet, said to me all the time when I, I knew when he was upset with me, you go, how do you think you did tonight, Jamie? <laughs> so whenever I, so it took me a while to kind of clue in what he was asking me because he was telling yeah. me that I didn't do very well. So that was the question. But I, I've, I've always wondered and I often ask because you're like whenever you're in a dressing room you, and a team is lost you're that's the worst time to be asking questions like you just you just you you're cringing you're like okay here comes a question and you ask the person and you're hoping that you don't get your head bit off because there there is yeah, a, i know it's like a, a goalie it. it's like a goalie that yeah. lets in a bad one and somebody floats yeah. out what you see there it's like well i yeah. didn't see the puck obviously because it went by me but at the end of the day i guess you you know, there's some situations where you almost think that, like, just let the players say a few things about the game and that's it because the questions get a little bit stupid sometimes. Yeah, and Zoom isn't helping nowadays either, Jeff. The, the Zoom questions with the players, I imagine that's even worse because they feel like they're more in the spotlight. So I'm just yeah, curious no what you think of, of the media situation now because of COVID. It must not – I'm sure the players don't, don't mind the fact they don't have guys in their dressing room around them, but it's got to be a little bit different with Zoom as well. Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, first of all, I got to give our people at TSN props because I think since this started, we've all done an unbelievable job of adapting to this situation and people working yeah. from homes and coming up with office studios and, and dealing with the computer as opposed to a camera not being on site. But um, it must be awfully difficult for the coach or the athlete that has to sit there basically staring into space with a mask on and the questions coming. Uh, there have been a few times, not necessarily hockey, but you can tell the person asking questions hasn't really paid attention to closely and it gets a little bit embarrassing at times. But I think for the most part, people are doing their best and it's just the way it's got to be right now. Awesome stuff, Jeff. I appreciate the time. Uh, good luck with the cat and uh, wish you all Thank the you, best buddy. at the World Juniors. I've got to say, the last thing I thought I was going to be talking about was a cat, but that's amazing stuff. So thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Jamie. We'll talk soon, buddy. Shop where the players shop. Jets Gear and TrueNorthShop.com are your authentic team stores. Make sure to stock up on all your favorite Winnipeg Jets and Manitoba Moose merchandise today. Visit one of the five Jets Gear locations or shop online at TrueNorthShop.com. 
Thank you to Jeff for taking the time to join us here on Ground Control. Uh, talking about the World Junior Hockey Championship, uh, it's underway in Edmonton right now. We've seen a couple of pre-tournament games. The actual tournament gets going on Boxing Day, Canada taking on Germany. Uh, on Tuesday night, Finland took on the U.S. in the, their pre-tournament game. Uh, Henry Nikonen and Vili Hainala, Winnipeg Jets prospects, taking part in that one. Uh, Mitchell, you watched the game. What did you see? Well, I was curious... I mean, I was curious to see them both, but Henry Nikonen was a guy that we really haven't seen a whole lot of outside of when he was at development camp. Obviously, Billy Hainala played uh, his handful of games in the National Hockey League last year. So he had like a bit of an idea of how he was. It was more just seeing how he's progressed. But Henry Nikonen, I thought, was was quite something. He's put on about 10 pounds since the Jets uh, drafted him last summer. Um and then he took that big six foot four frame of his and put it right in front of the uh, American net on the power play. So um, obviously he's a guy that you stand in that spot. You're going to take a, a lot of abuse from opposing defensemen, but he seemed to handle that quite well. And he played a big factor in, in the Finnish uh, team being able to get on the board. So he's somebody that, I, that I'm curious to watch. He's got some speed. Uh, he's playing on that third line and then obviously that second power play unit. So I'm, I'm going to be watching him as the, as the tournament progresses uh, for Finland, Billy Hainala, I mean, he was basically everywhere. This is third world juniors. That's kind of how he, uh, he's going to be a big part of what Finland's able to do. Um, Finland took four consecutive penalties in that opening period and nearly got out of there unscathed. And, and Billy was a big part of that penalty kill. So I like how he's looked. I mean, he's always going to be able to move the puck. That's his game. And he continued to be able to do that. Just made those really small plays to get, uh, to get out of the zone and get the puck up the ice. So he's a guy that's going to be able to make some plays. So Billy, I thought looked pretty good. And Henry Nikonen, like I said, was just a guy that I was intrigued to watch. Um, so yeah, overall, I mean, Finland ends up losing the game to the Americans, a really skilled squad that they have over there. Um, that that's something that really stood out to me as well. So World Juniors is one of my favorite times of the year. And then you add in the fact that uh, there's some Jets prospects, including Cole Perfetti, getting his first taste of the World Juniors as well. Um, it's a great time of year. Absolutely. And uh, shifting back into the, the NHL conversation, Paul, the NHL announcing a new offside rule interpretation, whatever you want to call it. Um, obviously, offsides have killed the Winnipeg Jets when it comes to goals coming back and I, I think this is a step in the right direction I guess pardon the pun uh what do you what do you make of the new rule well it was a long time coming guys number one I think that everybody to a person across the league felt that this was a flawed rule the skate in the air well how does that really affect anything and I think that it just took a little while for them to get on side pardon the pun on how they were going to look at this but I don't believe that the skate in the air, and that's kind of what we're talking about, and that's what they're eliminating. That was that gray area. I don't know that this loophole or this situation where it was in the air over the blue line was the intent or the principle of the rule, but there was gray area, and leave it to the coaches and video coaches. They'll find that loophole, and they'll manipulate it, and they did for a long time. To me, it slowed the game down. It took away offensive chances. And it wasn't really breaking the rule, per se, of what offside is. So if you have one skate in advance, the other skate on the blue line, whether it's in the air or not, as long as the puck precedes the second skate, you're onside. And that's what they finally did here. They got the rule right. 
So we're going to have a situation now where you're putting offside back in the hands of the linesman because in numerous conversations with people around the league, it got to the point where linesmen didn't want to make the offside call for fear of making the wrong call only to be then, I guess, further criticized or scrutinized by the video review on it. So they were just letting it go. And then if it was deemed that one of the video coaches went to the coach, felt it was offside, they threw the challenge out there, then it would get rectified. Well, now you put the whistle back in the hands of the linesman to call offside in the true form and the way that we all grew up understanding the rule. So I think the NHL got it right, guys. It just took a little while to get there. Yeah, I think it's pretty much a, a unanimous at this point. I, I haven't seen much on, on Twitter and, and all the social media platforms, you know, criticizing the change. I think everybody's quite happy with where we're at. To end things off, I do have one question, uh, one more question for you, Paul. Uh, how's the outdoor rink coming? I've seen a few pictures <laughs> on your Twitter. Are things going well? Fantastic. A little chilly here leading up toward uh, Christmas and the holidays after we had what was supposed to be a big blizzard, but we didn't really get it. I don't know what happened there. But, yes, we've always made some improvements every year. This is year 12 at Casa de Edmonds and the Edmonds <laughs> Garden, I like to call it. Nice. Uh, last year we added a fire pit. Uh, this year we added some extra lights. So it's kind of been my winter thing with the kids. And if they weren't using it, guys, I wouldn't do it because it's a lot of work. There's no question about it. But my kids are out there all the time. They will be over these holidays as well because it is an extended holiday period because there's some remote learning going on as well. So I really love it. It's a labor of love. It's my winter thing in and around hockey and our involvement with the Winnipeg Jets. Uh, but uh, I get out there and wheel around every once in a while too. And this year, even more important because the kids aren't playing under the Hockey Manitoba umbrella right now. Everything is right. on pause or suspended because of, because of covid and I think everybody deserves an honorary degree in epidemiology here because we've, we've discussed <laughs> viruses and, and strains and vaccines and all of that for the last nine months. But to get back to your question succinctly, uh, the rink has been put to good use. And I do know that the popularity of outdoor rinks right across the province and right across the country and the, um, I guess, upper reaches of, of the northern United States it's just kind of exploded because that's where people are finding ice right now because you just can't go down to the community club or inside arena to skate. Awesome. Well, I'm glad to hear it. And uh, thanks for uh, for starting season three of Ground Control, gentlemen. This has been great. Uh, looking forward to doing this uh, on a weekly basis with you guys throughout the season. So uh, on behalf of myself, Tyler Esquivel, Mitchell Clinton, Paul Edmonds, and Jamie Thomas, you're listening to Ground Control, the official podcast of the Winnipeg Jets. This is Big Ground Control, the official podcast of the Winnipeg Jets, hosted by Jets TV. For Jets news, videos, and more, head to winnipegjets.com.